Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Guys doing good? All right, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles that's in the chair in front of you in a little rack. If you forgot your Bible today, really encourage you to follow along with us. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible and, and make it your own and use it and read it. In that Bible that's in the chair in front of you, we're going to be uh, on page 690 if you uh, want to find it quickly. Well, as you're finding that, let me um, mention a couple things to you before we get started on this uh, re- really, really important passage that we're going to deal with today. The first is, um, there's some bunch of young lieutenants here that have just graduated from the Armor, uh, armor Basic course. Um, raise your hand, guys, if you're here and you graduated from there. There's a couple guys. There's Dan, uh, Emery. All right, we've got some new uh, big gun lieutenants in the Army. Some guys over here. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't point that Abrams tank at me, brother. Um, but, uh, and, and as these guys have just graduated from their armor basic course, uh, there's a bunch of young infantry lieutenants, which is actually the real, real branch of the army, but they, the, um, I'm sorry, armor guys, just an old infantry guy, never, never gets out of my system, but there's a bunch of uh, young infantry lieutenants that are starting ranger school this morning, and uh, that's a, it's a pretty difficult two months, it's probably the most difficult two months um, that they will ever face uh, outside of going into combat. And so let's pray for those young guys as they're there. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a tremendous challenge for them. And uh, hopefully the weather will be warm for them and, uh, and they get through that quickly. Um, also, I want to let you know that uh, some, some things going on here internally that we're excited about. Um, but at the same time, um, just you know, follow the Lord's lead. May, it could potentially kind of change um, um, our eldership a little bit. But Don McKelvey, um, I'm really excited to tell you, has been... Um, asked to be the interim pastor at a small church in Hamilton, Georgia. It's called Ebenezer Baptist Church. They've been without a pastor for a while now, and Don has been filling the pulpit for them. And so they've asked him to be the kind of 60-day interim pastor. Don is going to continue to be an elder here, and then if we get to the point where maybe that church might call him permanently, we're just going to kind of uh, pray with them and, and, and see where the Lord leads on that, then of course he would, he would be the pastor there. But until that time or until we get to that, uh, that, that fork in the road, um, um, Don's, Don's going to continue to serve here as an elder um, in, in as much capacity as he can while he serves that congregation. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's kind of one of those deals where we're really excited about the possibility of, of uh, even in these next two months, Don serving that church. would would hate to see him not be an elder here, but we're just going to kind of pray and take the Lord's leading as, as that goes. So pray for Don and Terry, and pray for that church, Ebenezer Baptist Church. It's up in Hamilton, kind of east of the city square there, and, and uh, Don's gifts and wisdom will be a tremendous boost and blessing for that church. And so let's pray for the witness of the gospel there through, through that church and through Don. All right, well, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 today. We're going to look at verse 3 is where we left off, left off last time. We're going to probably get through verse 14. Uh, now, today is one of those, those days where if we just sort of parachute down into this text without understanding everything that has preceded it, we could very easily slip into to morality. We could very easily put the cart before the horse. We can, we can very easily slip into morality rather than Christianity. One time when we were at the old Mountain Hill Schoolhouse, it, I was reminded of this when Reynolds was talking about the chicken man coming when we used to do picnics on the lawn up there. Um, I was borrowing my father-in-law's trailer. We had packed some uh, tables and chairs in the back of this thing, and um, I was driving down Mountain Hill Road, maybe going a little bit too fast and swerved to miss something that was on the road, and evidently we didn't put the trailer real good on the hitch or whatever, and the, the trailer came off of the back of my truck, and, and, and I knew this because I kind of felt something, but then I started to slow down just because I realized that I jerked the truck a little bit, and the trailer, I look out to the right, and the trailer is passing me um, on the side of the thing, and it, then it hit a tree and bent up the tongue on his trailer, and that was a difficult conversation with my father-in-law, and anyway, 
I don't think I've actually paid him for the damages, but, um, but the point is, is that if we, don't, if we don't get the gospel right, then all of the commands that the scripture calls on how to live can, can, can really get out of order. And what happens a lot of times is when we plop down in a scripture like this, where the Bible clearly tells us what not to do and what to do, especially in regards to some sensitive sort of sin areas, and if we don't approach those imperatives, those commands by Paul in this case, through the lens of the gospel, knowing that we can't live for God in and of ourselves, but we can live and follow God's commands through Christ's righteousness and his spirit that he gives us, that then we won't sort of get the trailer unhitched from the Christian life. So think of it this way, the gospel is like the engine of the Christian life that allows us to carry the commands of Christ and fulfill them. Otherwise, it gets unhitched and, and the trailer goes careening down the shoulder of the road and stuff spills out and it just gets ugly and nasty and your tongue gets bent up and not, not your physical tongue, but you know, the tongue on the, and it just doesn't work. So today we're going to we're going to especially uh, uh, look at that. So really, I just have one point as we work through this, and then we're going to look at some application in different um, aspects of the Christian life. Well, let me pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we, we thank you for your grace today. Thank you for your, your Bible that is your word. It's your inspired, completely true, holy word to us. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us as we, as we read these words from your Apostle Paul. They are heavy and weighty, and they are so needed. I pray, Lord, for people in this room who may not yet be Christians, and I am certain that there are people that fit that description here today. I pray, Lord, that through your kindness and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make them alive. That you would give them eyes so that they can see, ears that they can hear, and a heart that they can trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross alone for their right standing with you. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters in this room that are already believers and followers of Jesus, that you would simultaneously convict us and encourage us. And as Kwame exhorted us early, earlier this morning to hit rewind and go back to Calvary and go back to the, the power of the gospel, not just to save, as glorious as that is, but to also sanctify us and help us become more like you for your glory, for our joy. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's just start working through it, and we'll stop along the way. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Well, let's just stop here for a moment and and listen, we could, we could spend a lot of time just on those two verses. But let's just, let's just for a minute pause and just kind of not assume that we all know what the Bible may be speaking about when it uses a phrase like sexual immorality. And I realize we have some younger children in here, and maybe or maybe not the parents of those younger children have had the talk with them. So don't get nervous, parents, and we're not going to get graphic. But the Bible clearly says through Paul in his letter to the Ephesians that sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, these, these grouping of three sins all seem to be directed towards a certain sort of fleshly expression of our, of our sexual desires. And Paul is saying that they shouldn't even be named among the Christian. So what is sexual immorality? I mean, I think we live in an age when that whole concept and that idea might just be shrouded in various opinions that are really more dominated by culture than they are by Scripture. Uh, I think just a, a brief description of what sexual immorality is is any, any, any sexual contact or activity with anybody that is not your spouse, whether or not you intend to marry them or not. 
And then the question is, well, what is that, actually? I'll agree with that, but then what is that? Well, I mean, again, we could spend all day on that. I, I think it is anything that causes us to lust or to, uh, to covet another person's body and the gratification that they can give us that is not our spouse. I think the conviction for me in my life, although I have failed at this, is that really it's anything uh, beyond just very, uh, very light kissing. And maybe even, maybe even in some cases, that too can cause our mind to go down the route of sexual immorality with somebody who is not our spouse. Now, before you classify me in some sort of legalistic, you know, male version of the church lady from the old Saturday Night Live skit, I want to put us all in the same camp here. We have all been sexually immoral. If you have passed, if you've passed the age of puberty, you, you, have, you, have, you have been sexually immoral, if not physically in the flesh, certainly in your mind and in your heart. And the scripture here is clearly telling us that that is outside. So if, if, if you are... This is not a particularly delightful way to start a sermon. Usually you ramp up, but that's the first verse that we're on. Uh, if, listen, if you're, if you're there right now, if you are engaged in sexual activity with somebody that is not your spouse, maybe you're a single person and it's with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or maybe you're married and it's with somebody outside of your marriage, and, and maybe it's not even physical, maybe it's an emotional internet or or conversational sort of immorality. The Bible is clear that that's not God's best for you. But here's what I want to spend most time on in these couple verses is that in order for us to understand that, we have to answer this question. I think when we're fighting any sort of sin, but especially these particular sins that fall into this category of sexual immorality, and the question is, is God for our joy or is he against our joy? See, that's the real question. And I think therein lies the real battle, the real deception. It's a huge challenge that we have to overcome. This is one of the most common and harmful misunderstandings of the scripture because we, listen, we are actually hardwired by God for pleasure, and joy. And the Bible actually, upon closer examination, is all for our joy. But it's for our joy in Christ. And all other pleasures outside of Christ are ultimately, listen to me well, young person who's struggling with this. In fact, this is a great barrier between you and God. All other pleasures, whatever their nature, are ultimately broken, counterfeit, joys that never satisfy. And, and so I, I think when we're even engaging this topic, and if you are there right now, do you, do you realize that you are uh, trading in a true satisfying joy in Christ for a sort of blo- broken, self-absorbed counterfeit? I love that quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory. I don't know if we sell it in the Resource Center I don't know it verbatim, but I do know it's on page 26. I can see it because I remember reading it for the first time and circling page 26. And he was comparing our fight against sin with, he gave us this picture where it's like a little child. He says, we are far too easily pleased. We're like a little child when we sin, especially in these areas, that is satisfied playing in the mud pies on the beach as if that is sort of pleasurable, when what God offers us in his way is a beautiful, beautiful holiday. And he says we are far too easily pleased. I think as we even engage this particular issue, if you're there right now, I want you to know if you're in the middle of the grips of sexual immorality, God is not against your joy. He is all for it. Let's keep going in verse 5. Now as he gives us that command to stay away from these things, that we're not even to have them named among us. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. It's out of place. 
Let there be thanksgiving. Then he gives a very stern warning. Again, this is not a particularly cheerful ramp up to the beginning half of this message, but again, this is where the verse is. So verse 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those are weighty words, friends. Because I think I just established that all of us, to, to some degree, have, have, have given in to that sin. And all of us are, to some degree, impure and covetousness, which is desiring something that is not ours. And, and then all of us are, on one level or another, with some particular object, an idolater. And when we talk about idolatry, we're not talking about statues and, and little middle and uh, in, in far east shrines or some particular faraway culture that's worshiping something that, that is like a little statue of a, a little chubby false god. No, idolatry is when we put anything between us and God, when we put anything as, as where pleasure is derived from outside of Christ. Uh, idolatry can be, can be our spouse. It can, we can turn good things into ultimate things, and that good thing becomes an idol. We are all idolaters. And so when we read this, we, we may really have to guard ourselves from slipping into despair because he says, you may be sure of this, everyone who is, who is falling to these things has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. And, and that, that may sit very heavy with us today, and I think it should. There will be hope here in just a second. But I won't get to it too early. We need to let that sit on us for a moment. He says in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. There's two things that I want you to note here from just these two verses is that God is, God is very serious about our obedience. God, God cares about what we do with our lives, with our bodies, with our mouths. The second thing that I want you to notice from these verses is that there are many deceiving voices in our culture. Paul admonishes the Ephesians, let no one deceive you with empty words. The world is not spiritually neutral. Like, do you get that? Like when, you, when all you're digesting is current culture and media and, and, and you're spending more time watching silly music awards or reality TV or, or you're, just, you're just engulfing the message of whatever's being pumped out there through the, the TV or, or through the internet, and, and, and you're not countering it with God's wisdom and the wisdom of God's people and community, do you realize how slowly but surely you just become sort of prey to the deception? The world is not spiritually neutral, and the world is not, it is not making itself obvious to us. It doesn't jump out from behind a bush with a, with a pitchfork and a t-shirt that says, I'm the devil here to devour you. It doesn't work that way, if you haven't noticed. If it did, we, we'd be like, well, wait a minute, you, you probably have evil intended for me. Maybe I should go the other way. In fact, Paul says to the Corinthians in another letter that the, the enemy disguises himself as an angel of light. There are many deceiving voices in our culture that will lead us astray with counterfeit truths that are just one tick off to the left or right. It's kind of like when you're sailing a boat. I'm, I've never really done any sort of naval navigation. But I imagine if you're in one place and you're shooting an azimuth or some, you're going in some compass direction and you're just one tick off, well, a better analogy would be a young lieutenant wandering through the woods in ranger school sometime here. I've done that a few times. And when you shoot an azimuth to a place on the map and if you're just one degree off to the right, when you start walking, you can be pretty much in your early path kind of on the same course, but as you get a thousand meters down the way or two miles down the way or five miles down the way, that one little tick off when you get to your destination will have you miles from your intended point. And, and that's the way deception often comes. It's one tick off. It's one sort, of, one sort of iota of a lie to the left or right. It's one compromise here or there. And Paul is saying, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. And he continues now, and here's the good news, because now we've, 
I think, um, I think I've got you all, I've got your attention, hopefully, or Paul does. Um, we see the command that we're supposed to live this way. And then we see the warning, what happens when we don't live that way. And I think we all internally realize that we, in and of ourselves, can't live that way. And so where's our hope? Where's our hope? Well, our hope is what he says now in verse 7, 8, and 9. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. Now, here's the key in verse 8. Listen to this. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. So do you see what just happened there? Do you see that just gospel was just crammed right there in the middle of that really depressing paragraph? He, he just says that, look, don't do this. And if you do this, the judgment of God is coming down upon you. But then he says, no, no, but that's not who you are. If he stopped after verse 6, we would all have to run in despair because there would be no hope because we cannot live up to the command of God. We can load up a trailer, we can hitch it to a truck, but if it's not fastened to our hearts by the gospel, that trailer is going to go careening off of the hitch and it's going to crash and burn. That's morality. That's what morality does. That's what human self-effort does apart from the grace in Christ. But the message here is, listen to this, get this. He says, he doesn't say, now, now what you need to do is try really hard. He doesn't say, do this and this and this and this. And if you do this, then maybe you will be in a position to be sort of approved by God. He doesn't say that. He doesn't talk about anything intrinsic or internal or inside of you. He doesn't ask you to reach down deeper inside of you. He points to something that has already happened that is outside of us. And he says that in verse 8. He says, for one time you were darkness. And here's the analogy, light and darkness. Remember a couple weeks ago we were talking about putting on and off. His analogy now is he's contrasting darkness and light. And he says at one time you were darkness, but now you are are light in the Lord. In other words, you were dark, you were dead, and Christ shined the glory of his radiance upon your face and made you alive. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says. In fact, write that down, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Read that sometime, maybe this afternoon. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. In fact, let me just read that now because it's so good. It just came to my mind. The guys didn't have it on the screen. I didn't tell them, but I should have. I'm sorry. 2 Corinthians 4, Verse 6, it says, listen to this, you're dark. The room is dark, right? Look who's doing the acting here. Look who's doing the justifying. Look who's doing the work. For God, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that means your room is dark. You were impure, you were covetous, and you were sort of an idolater. I was too, all of us were. That's what we were. And God, by his mercy and kindness, walks into the dead room of our heart that was dark, and he flips the light switch, and he lets us see, and he brings us back to life. And now what was dark is now light. And so he's saying something that's happened outside of you, it hit you, you didn't dig down deep inside yourself, it happened to you, and now you are alive, Ephesians. Now you can see, cross points. Light has come, so now walk in accordance with who God has already made you to be. So it's not do this so that you can become, it's hit rewind to Calvary, remember who you are actually already are. Do you, see the, do you see how one is religion and it's hopeless and the other is gospel and it's possible? Do you see that? Become who you already are. Walk in light because God has already hit the switch in your life. He goes on to say in verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. In other words, by the way, this is not... Um, the main thrust of what I want to say, but, but how do we know whether or not we're actually Christians? Because we raised our hand on Thursday night at a youth rally, 
because we joined the church or because we responded to an altar call or because we go to a Bible study or because we get a bulletin from First Baptist or Second Methodist or Third Presbyterian or Fourth Hamana, 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 Hamana. No, we know we're a Christian because where the root of saving faith is, there will necessarily be some fruit of that saving root. So where there is a root of faith, there is some fruit of that. That's why Jesus says, you'll know my people by their works. John 15, he talks about if you're in me, you will bear fruit to some degree. And somebody always asks me this question when I mention that. They say, well, what about the guy that dies on his deathbed? Seconds before his, his last breath, he's rejected Christ all of his life, and he confesses Jesus right then, and he doesn't have the opportunity to sort of display any fruit. Well, I, I, would, I would say that, first of all, deathbed conversion is possible. I wouldn't bank on it. That's what you're hoping for. But in that moment, in that moment when you confess Christ, in that moment when God shines the light, no, no matter how close to your earthly passing that may be, the first fruit, the first fruit of saving faith is always love for Jesus. The fruit, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Right then, in that moment, the first sort of internal fruit that hits the human heart, when they realize that they were dead and now they are alive in Christ, instantly their heart turns away from love of flesh, love of self, love of sin, and it instantly turns to, even in a very small form, love of their Savior who has made them alive. And so how do you know you're a Christian? What do you love, man? I'm not talking about you don't struggle with sin. What do you love, man? What, what, what do you love? Well, is there any fruit of love and joy in Christ in your life? That's how you know, and that's what Paul is saying here, that when children are made alive, when they are children of the light, there is fruit of light and all that is good and right and true. In verse 10, and he says, and try to discern, like try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Like now that you're saved, now that you're a child of the light, now you can put off these things and you can put on these things and you can now give your life to a God-oriented, God-dominated, seized heart to where now the heartbeat of your life is not sort of adding Jesus to your life so that it's sort of you 2.0, but now your heart is transformed. It's, it's, your life is Christ. Everything is Christ. You just want to make your life about him. And, and now your, your heartbeat, our heartbeat, is to try and think about how can my life now Make much of Jesus rather than myself. And he goes on to, to encourage them in verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Now, I, I think that we need to probably think a little bit about what's going on in verse 11. Does that mean that once you become a Christian and now you walk in the light, that you need to become a sort of sin detector with your little flashlight of grace? or judgment on people, and take verse 11 a little bit out of and unhinge it from the rest of this chapter and become sort of the sin exposer of those around you? No, I don't think that is what you need to do. I think what the scriptures are telling us there is that as we become light, just kind of as we live as light in a dark world, when we become one with Christ, like when we, when we really have his way in our heart and we become transformed and renewed and regenerated and made new by him, just by virtue of a light walking into a dark place, it just sort of brings exposure to the brokenness and the, the counterfeit world around it. And so really a Christian that is, that is, that is trying to discern what is pleasing the Lord who, who's oriented and is consumed with making much of Jesus by virtue of their newfound love is just going just gonna to expose just brokenness around them. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. And then he ends, and these will be the final two verses we, we get to. He says, but when anything, and we've got to think about this and we've got to read it slowly now. But when anything is exposed by the light, meaning the glory of the gospel, the knowledge of what God has done in Christ on the cross. And what did, what did God do in Christ on the cross? He took the sin of all those who will ever turn and trust in Jesus. He took their sin and he put it on Jesus' shoulders. 
and he poured out his wrath on his son. And Jesus completely extinguishes and satisfies God's punishment for sin, his wrath. Remember where we read up in uh, verse 6 where it says that because of these sins, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience? Listen, God will be justified. God will maintain his holiness, and he does it by one of two ways. He does it by either punishing people who do not trust in Jesus, and punishment is real and forever, or he has done it for his people that would turn and trust in him by punishing Jesus on the cross. And so on the cross, Jesus has taken the sin of all who will ever turn and trust in him. And he takes their sin, he extinguishes it, he removes God's judgment from it, and he gives them life. He shines the light of his glory and his beauty so that they are now alive, so that they can trust in him and make their lives about him. That's what it means to be exposed by the light. So he says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. You see it. There it is. That was my sin. Now I'm Jesus's. Verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. So, so what, is, what does that mean? So literally, as Jesus shines the light of the gospel on our hearts, it does two things. It exposes our sin, but it also transforms it. Do you see that? So it's not, so, so the light doesn't just flip the switch in our heart and Jesus, you get this knowledge of the gospel, and, and then all of a sudden you see, oh gosh, I'm so messed up. I'm, I've got all these sins, sexual immorality, impurity, that's me. Now what do I do? The light of the gospel, the light of the glory of Jesus doesn't just expose, it also transforms. You, you've got to see this. Don't, like, if I've done a poor job up to this point, click in, click in, like, get this, right? Get this, because you see that the power of God is from the outside, and it doesn't just show us Christ, it transforms us so that we can actually live for Christ. Listen to this, verse 14. For anything that becomes visible doesn't just become visible by the light. You would think that's what he would say there. You would think he would say, for anything that becomes visible has become visible by the light. But that's not what he says. He says anything that becomes visible then becomes transformed by the light. Do you see that? So the so the light of the glory of the gospel doesn't just make it known, it actually transforms. So, so when God saves a person and doesn't leave them in their darkness, he flips the on switch in the dark room of their heart, and he doesn't just give them conviction, he actually changes them so that they are no longer dark, but they're light. I, I think that's tremendously exciting and comforting, and, and I don't know if you do or not, maybe you're like, he does it. Like, the gospel doesn't only convict and shine light. It actually transforms. It actually changes. Do you see that? It doesn't just leave us to fix ourselves. It actually fixes us. That's the power of the gospel. Therefore, it says, and he quotes something. It is a kind of a debate among scholars. I don't know if it's referring back to Isaiah chapter 60 or if it's just a sort of baptismal hymn that the early church would, would recite, but either way, it's scripture, it's in Ephesians 5, it says, therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So this is what sin has done to us. This is what sexual immorality and covetousness and impurity and foolish talk and crude joking, by the way, all of which at some point I have participated in, right? Okay? Oh, we've all done it. And what that does is it kills us. It makes us completely unable to turn to God. And so we are dead in a dark room. And, and what Paul is saying is, is that Jesus, by his sovereign grace, walks into the dead, dark room of our heart, flips the light switch and says, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That, that's just a short little summary of the story of Lazarus in John chapter 11. Lazarus has been dead for three days. Jesus shows up to his friend's tomb, and he says, Lazarus, get up. Get up, Lazarus. Not Lazarus, do better. Not Lazarus, have more faith. Not Lazarus, stop doing this. He says, Lazarus, get up. And friends, that 
is the gospel. And we don't like it sometimes because it excludes our work. And why do we hate it? Because we get no credit. And when we rile against that, that's just a sign of our flesh wanting to rear its ugly head because we want credit. We want to contribute something to our salvation. We want something. But friends, the, the, really the first step to understanding the message of the gospel and then the, uns, the next step to being propelled into confidence in your sanctification is understanding pure, unadulterated grace that says, arise, arise. I listened to this sermon a week or two ago from this, uh, this preacher that I, I like to listen to. You guys wouldn't know his name. But, uh, and sometimes he says some goofy stuff, so I'm not going to send you his way because you might, you might listen to some of his stuff and it'll be weird. But this particular, <laughs> this particular passage or message that he was preaching, I, I really appreciated this picture that he gave as an illustration. It was a picture of how we become Christians. He says that what we provide to our salvation is the carcass. Like, that's our contribution. (laughs) We provide the carcass. And he says that the, the world is like three acres of dirt, six feet deep. It's a cemetery. And we provide the carcass, and we're six feet deep, in this three acres of dirt, which is the world. And the devil is the caretaker of the cemetery. So we, we're six feet under, dirt, acres of land, fenced-in cemetery, the devil's the caretaker. Friends, that is the state of everybody before they come to Christ. I don't care how sharp you are, I don't care how relatively moral you are. If you have not yet trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, that is where you are. Now, in that scenario, friends, let's just be honest. I think we all agree that that's a clear witness of what sin has done to us in the Bible. You can't will yourself out of that six-foot hole. You can't New Year's resolution yourself out of the grave. What we need is to be resurrected. And that is precisely what the gospel does. Jesus comes into the cemetery and he owns it all. Even though he has given temporary control to some degree of that cemetery to the enemy, he walks into that cemetery and says, this one is mine. Arise, O sleeper, for the light of Christ is shining on you. And now you were once, seconds before, a child of darkness, but now you're a child of light. And what Paul is saying is here is now walk in accordance with who you actually are. So there's two applications here. Christian, Walk, be sanctified, bear fruit, fight sin, put off these things and put on these things. And you can because Christ has made you alive, given you his character, filled you with his Holy Spirit, given you his word, and surrounded you by his people. And you can do this. And the second application is to a person who's not a Christian. Do you, see, do you see actually the beautiful good news of this? Do you see how the message of the gospel is almost, I mean, it's scandalous? Do you see that? Do you see it's not, like you would think it would be, do this. In fact, maybe that's what's kept you from Christianity all these years because you think it's some message of works. Do this, do that. But it's not. It's come alive, man, the power of the God. Right now, do you have ears to hear? Right now, can you hear? Come alive. Come alive, don't check off a checklist. Arise, dead man, arise, dead woman, and come alive. Oh, that is so freeing when you realize that you contribute nothing. Right now, do you have ears to hear? Right now, do you hear that? If you hear that, I believe that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is moving upon your heart 
to bring you up out of your helpless state. Do you realize how, do you realize how good that is? Do you realize how that levels the playing field? Do you realize that whether you are rich or poor, black or white, upper class, middle class, lower class, do you realize whether you grew up in church or didn't grow up in church, do you realize that none of that matters? Because when Christ shines the light on a human heart, whether, whether, we, whether whatever type of life we've lived up to that point, we become alive. Do you realize how freeing that is and how much grace, that, that is scandalous grace, friends. And that's, that's what Paul is saying here. So four, four people I want to end on, four applications to different places where we may be. One, and I think there's probably all four of these groups in this room. I have been in all four of these camps. To the nominal cultural Christian, what does this paragraph on walking in the light have to say to you? To the nominal cultural Christian, you've confessed Christ. You would consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you grew up in the Bible Belt. Maybe you've always even attended church. But there's no real change in your life. The Bible and its truths have very little impact on your life in reality. Yes, you agree with what you know of as the major tenets of the faith. There's a God. Jesus was a son who died for our sins, etc., etc. But that reality doesn't drive who you are. It has, friends, let's be honest, it has no claim on your life. And because we live in a watered-down culture, we have slapped the Christian tag on you because you sort of hang around church occasionally. Can I ask you, are you being deceived by empty words? Are you buying into a cultural definition of what it means to be a Christ follower rather than a biblical definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Friends, I say this not to be harsh, but I say this because I care more about your soul than your happiness with me. I don't think you're a Christian. There's no fruit. There's no, there's no, there's nothing we can say that this person truly loves Jesus. It's, it's on your lips, but it's not in your heart. You need to examine yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, test yourself, lest you be in the faith. Is that you? I have, man, I spent the first 20 years of my life like that. second person that may be in here today is the legalistic Christian. I think we got the order wrong there. You can just scrap the list. The legalistic Christian. You've been a Christian for a while, and you care about taking life in Christ seriously, but you've become kind of grumpy and sour and legalistic. We could be honest, you're, you're a Christian pessimist. You talk a lot about the way things used to be, and you look at younger or less mature Christians who may be struggling with sin and maturity, and you look upon them with frustration and suspicion. And you frequently bemoan the lack of spiritual desires that you see in others. Can I ask you a couple questions? Yes, you, you've received grace, but are you quick to give it? Are you like the Galatians in chapter 3 where Paul says, you started out so well, you started out in the spirit of grace, but now you're trying to maintain your justification by works of the law. Did you start out in grace and now you're, now you're just, you're just, you're like that legalist that looks down the end of your nose at people and you're just grumpy and suspicious and mean. And, and, you, and you major on minor issues, all the peripheral stuff, you know. And that just becomes kind of the little test of true maturity for you. You would do well, friend, if that is you. And, and I've been that person. I, I might be that person sometime this week. Check with me Wednesday morning. I might be right in that camp. You, you would do well to meditate on 1 Thessalonians 5.14, which says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, 
Help the weak. Be patient with them all. The third category of person that I suspect is in this room today and the camp I've been in and again float in and out of at times is the selfish Christian. The selfish Christian. Christianity for, you've been a Christian for some time and you're not very concerned with people who are still in darkness or weaker Christians who are struggling to grow. Your life is marked by an oblivious ease and comfort and you never really get into the fray. You, you never take your light. It was given to you by pure grace from God as a means then of his grace by taking it into the darkness of somebody else's life, and you skim on the surface by constantly going from church to church or Bible study to Bible study or event to event. Yes, yes, all along maybe edifying yourself, but you never really get your hands dirty. Can I exhort and encourage you that you must remember that your life is not about you? Jesus didn't save you so that you could personally be edified? Have you reduced the gospel down to a self-esteem boost? Is God's desire to make much of you? Or at the cost of his son, is his desire to enable you to make much of him through giving your life away to others? Can I encourage you to find a struggling Christian or an unbeliever outside of your natural comfort zone, outside of your social demographic, and pour your life and your light into their darkness through friendship or encouragement so that by God's grace, you might be the means that God uses to flip the switch in somebody else's dead, dark heart. And fourthly and finally, to the struggling Christian. You have... Uh, maybe just recently become a Christian, or maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but if we could be honest, your life has been marked by spiritual defeat. You regularly and maybe even frequently struggle with habitual sin and the corresponding guilt that racks you and keeps you up at night. Can I, can I ask you a, question, a couple questions? Has your sin been brought, all of it, has it been brought under the light of Christ? Or are there still parts of your life that are in darkness? Friends, I have been there. And there is no more exhausting treadmill to be on. There's no more exhausting treadmill. Have you given yourself to other Christians in community? Or are most of your relationships superficial and inch deep because you keep people at arm's length because God forbid they truly realize who you are or what you're struggling with? Do you realize in your fight against sin that God is actually all for your joy, not against it? But he's for your joy in Christ, in him, not in these broken counterfeits? Of all of these four, I think that's the one that I personally identify with most. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ comes into our life, shines the glory of his radiance and beauty on us, and we come alive. And now we are not just walking in the light, we actually are light. So Christian struggling, nominal, selfish. Be who you already are in Christ. Non-Christian, rest. Rest from your work and hear the grace of the gospel and arise from your sleep. I end with this, and I know you have been concerned it has been several weeks, maybe even a few months, since I have read a quote from my hero, Charles Spurgeon. I know that you have been concerned. I have read this on numerous occasions. It may be my favorite quote from good old Chuck. 
He writes in the Sermon on Romans chapter 4, verse 5, and that verse says that it is God, to him that works not but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. In other words, it's not any work that we do to get up out of the grave, but God makes us alive and counts us as just in Christ. He writes in the end of this sermon, and it's in a little book called All of Grace that I think we sell in the Resource Center. We may be out, but we'll order some more. He says, come in your disorder. I mean, come to your heavenly Father in all your sin and sinfulness. Come to Jesus just as you are, leprous, filthy, naked, neither fit to live nor fit to die. Come. You that are the very sweepings of creation, come, though you hardly dare to hope for anything but death. Come, though despair is brooding over you, pressing upon your bosom like a horrible nightmare. Come and ask the Lord to justify another ungodly one. Why should he not? Come, for his great mercy, for this great mercy of God is meant for such as you. I put it in the language of the text, and I cannot put it more strongly. The Lord God himself takes to himself this gracious title, him that justifieth the ungodly. He makes just and causes to be treated as just those who by nature are ungodly. Is that not a wonderful word for you? Do not delay. Do not delay till you have considered this matter well. Come to Jesus. Unbeliever, come to Jesus now, right now. Turn and trust in him. Struggling Christian, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus now. Let's pray. Father, help us now. I pray that you would use my feeble words even through the filter of my very much in process life and my weak delivery of this grand truth and you would cause people to go from darkness to light by trusting in Jesus, by believing and trusting in him alone for their right standing with you. And Lord, for my Christian friends in here, Lord, would you fuel our sanctification, our growth in you? Not by giving us a list now that once we become Christians of things that we must do and not do. But by reminding us of the power of the gospel. By reminding us of who we are. We're children of light. And that means we can and do walk in light. Or would you do this? Would you do this? Would you do this for my friends? Would you do this for me? Would you do this for this church? Would you do this for your glory? Would you do this for our joy? In Jesus' name.